Let's pray together. Father in heaven, instruct our hearts now through your holy word. These are not simply the words of men. These are the words of your spirit sent through men to teach and instruct our hearts regarding your self-revelation of who you are and your relationship with us to show us how we relate to one another to show us the power of sin and how to overcome it. Lord, teach us now through your word and through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd ask that you turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23. I remember when I was in college, I received an encouragement card. Uh, I got it out of the mail, and I opened up the envelope, of course, and pulled out this card. And on the front of the card, uh, there was this plain-looking woman. It was obviously the first part of the day. She had her flip-flops, her slippers on. Her hair was all messed up. She had no makeup on, so whatever imperfections in her face were showing, th- showing through. Uh, you know, and, and uh, she had on her bathrobe, and she was looking in the mirror, and she's brushing her teeth. And while she's brushing her teeth, you know, slobber and, and uh, part of the toothpaste is running down the side of her mouth. I thought, this is the worst card anybody could ever give me. But then you look at the heading, and it says, Reality. For those who can't handle fantasy. I looked at that and it made me laugh because I know that it's in the reverse. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's fantasy for those who can't handle reality. That's the way it should be. But this puts a spin on it, of course, and puts it on the other foot. Anyway, when I was looking at that, I was thinking about uh, this proverb... Uh, the principle of why people get caught in an addiction. And number one is, yes, to escape your problems, to escape the reality that you don't like, and to establish a fantasy that you can like. To establish some type of, of dream state or some type of fantasy that's not real that will take your attention away to what reality is actually like. And once you get in it, how easy is it to get out of it? You can get caught in that loop. It's a cyclical trap. And this, since we're talking about alcohol here, wine, uh, Solomon is addressing the drunkard, basically. And this is the cyclical trap of the drunkard. Now, the reason these addictions, and you could implement all addictions for drunkenness, That's just one of them. But the reason these addictions are cyclical traps is because the person looks to them to satisfy the internal emptiness and ultimately their their addiction, if not properly addressed, will slowly destroy them like a creature in a trap that cannot escape. They will end up dying tethered to the very thing they know they should escape from but can't. That's the plight of addiction. Let's look at the text here for a moment that reveals both the fantasy side of the drunkard, what they want from the wine, and the reality side of the drunkard, what they actually get from the wine. Okay, What they want, which is the fantasy side, and what they actually get, which is the reality side. Proverbs 23, 
verses 29 through 35. Hear God's word. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Your eyes will see strange sights and your mind imagine confusing things. You will be like the one sleeping on the high seas, lying on the top of the rigging. They hit me, you will say, but I am not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. When will I wake up so I can find another drink? The first thing we need to understand with this passage is that it is not condemning alcohol per se. The Bible does not condemn alcohol. Jesus, when he was at a wedding festival was drinking alcoholic wine. It was not grape juice. It was not Kool-Aid. They didn't have Kool-Aid back then. (laughs) It was wine, okay? Alcoholic wine. And then when they ran out of wine, Jesus did not just make grape juice. He made more fermented wine, more alcoholic wine. And the reason he did that was not just to be gratuitous, not just to accommodate his mom, Mary, his earthly mother, so that, so that they'll have more wine for the festival. The reason he did that was to show forth what the real celebration is about. The real celebration is that we have, we have communion with God through the blood of Christ. That, that crimson red wine represents the blood of Christ. When we have the Lord's Supper and we partake of the cup, That is not the cup of God's wrath. That is the cup of God's blessing. It should be the cup of God's wrath because as sinners we deserve God's judgment. But instead we receive God's blessing because the judgment falls upon Jesus Christ. That's why we call it the new covenant in the blood of Christ. That through his blood shed for us we have peace with God. We have union with God through the Holy Spirit. The wine that he made at that wedding festival represents the wedding supper of the Lamb where His church, the bride, will be united with Him and we will be in communion with our Lord forevermore. That's what that points to. So, when you look here, you notice that there's nothing wrong again with drinking an alcoholic beverage in moderation. Moderation or self-control should actually be a guide for how we ought to live our lives anyway, not reacting adversely to circumstances, but finding our contentment in Christ, uh, who gives us the strength in time of need. This is how we ought to live, but life is a struggle, isn't it? When that terrible day hits us, and we're down and out, how do we respond to it? Will you face it or run from it? Will you deal with reality or seek the fantasy? Here in Proverbs 23, the drunkard does not seek one drink as he seeks the fantasy. If you look at verse 30, it tells us he wants to sample bowls, plural, of wine. It also uses the word linger 
That means to stick around. You think about somebody who stays at the bar until it closes and he's totally intoxicated. That's the picture or image you have here. He's one who is intoxicated because he is a drunkard. So you're looking for wine as a drunkard to do what for you? You know, to make you more happy? To make you more content? To make you invincible? We do have some of that in here. Some, someone has said at one point that uh, alcohol is like liquid courage. <laughs> uh, you look at verse 35. He says, they hit me, you will say, but I am not hurt. <laughs> they beat me up, but I don't feel it. This is because alcohol dulls the senses, of course. It's not because you are invincible. That is the fantasy. The reality is that you're still in pain. You just don't feel it yet until the next day. I find it funny that you look at verse 29. It shows the depiction of what the alcoholic is like or what the drunkard is like. And and in some ways it should come after verse 35 because it reminds me of the day after. Verse 29 says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? These are reasons that people want to escape the reality that they're in and go towards the wine, right? Go towards the alcohol. Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? (laughs) Who has needless bruises? You feel it now, don't you? You didn't feel it then, but you feel it now. You didn't have to have those bruises, but you went down that road and got drunk, and now here you are, thinking you're invincible when you realize now with the pain, and sometimes pain is good for us in that sense, helping us to remember that we're not invincible. Who has bloodshot eyes? That's reality, not fantasy. And then we go back to verse 35. When will I... Wake up so I can find another drink. I want to go back to fantasy land again. This stinks. Reality stinks. I don't like it. I don't want to live here. I want to go back to the fantasy. And so pour me another drink. Verses 29 and 35 are connected, serving as the bookends of this passage. And I see them almost like being the snare of a trap where you start out loose and you connect them and then you tighten them down to where you need to be so that when, when the animal runs through, that snare pulls around their shoulders and pulls tight and they cannot break free. They are there until they die. They are there until they die. That is the cyclical trap of the addict, of the drunkard. Now everyone has their bad days. Everyone has their bad days. The question is, how will you address those bad days? How do you deal with adverse circumstances? Do you deal with them honestly in reality, or do you seek escape through a fantasy world that is more to your own liking? We live in a largely entertainment-oriented society these days even a fantasy-driven world, where it is so easy for people to just check out of reality and seek their own fantasy. There are video games, uh, the Internet and all that it opens up to us. There's television, music, 
alcohol, narcotics. Even the news is based more in fantasy, or at least fiction, than reality these days. Even some churches are based on fantasy rather than reality. They have not a clue as to what God's Word actually teaches. But to keep their people happy, they keep feeding them the lies. They keep feeding them the fantasy. They are blind guides leading the blind. The old devil has made it so easy for people to check out instead of checking in with God. If you want to know what reality is, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. This is a dose of reality from David. Psalm 139, verse 1. David says to the Lord, O Lord, You have searched me, and You know me. How well does God know me? You know me when I sit down and when I rise, so You know all my actions. You perceive my thoughts from afar, so You know what's in my head. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. That means you know what's in my heart. This is the reality of who God is and what He knows about you and me. Verse 5, you hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Too lofty, he's talking about when he laid his hand upon him that he anointed him for the kingship. Something that that God was going to do before David even had a clue. And David understands that this knowledge is too wonderful. I can't even fathom the greatness of your knowledge and understanding. It's too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? God is omnipresent. Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, in Sheol, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become, becomes night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day. Have you ever been out in a night where there are no stars and there's no moon and there's no light and you're not around any light and you hold your hand in your face and you cannot see it and you get closer until you touch your nose and you still can't see your hand? Imagine that kind of darkness that's as light to God. That He sees through everything. He sees through matter, through darkness. He sees everything. Verse 13, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. This is the knowledge of God. This is reality. Did you hear what David wrote in verse 16? 
all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Can we say with David, your, your, your wisdom, your knowledge is too wonderful for us to understand? In order for this to be true, God need, would need to be omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. <laughs> Perhaps some intellectual would come up to me and say, Sir, that is actually a fantasy. You know how I would answer him? How do you know? The only way you would know is if you were God, and that just doesn't work for me. Because I know you have a beginning. God does not. He is eternal. No beginning, no end. Forevermore. Psalm 139, 23-24 is more about David's willingness to deal with reality, with what really is in his heart, than it is God having to search David's heart. You know, he says, Search me and know my heart. See if there be any anxious way in me and lead me in, in the way everlasting. And we look at that and we think that that's David inviting God. And it's not just simply an invitation. It's if, if you've been following along in Psalm 139, God does not need to look again at David's heart. He sees it. This is on David coming before God. This is David confessing his heart to God. It's the opposite of Adam and Eve after they've found out that they've sinned against a holy God and they're running for the trees trying to hide themselves, trying to hide their sin. And God has to pursue them and, and find them. This is David not running for the trees but standing in front of God saying, I'm guilty. I'm a sinner. Show me my sin because I don't want to sin against you. I don't want to rebel against you. I want to walk in the path that is everlasting. Reveal to me the harm in my heart that is, that is directed towards you. Show me my rebellion. Show me my rebellion that I might confess it to you and transform my heart that I might be led in the way that is everlasting. He's crying out for forgiveness and sanctification. It doesn't seem like it's there, but it's inferred in the text. Because what any one of us deserve if we were to stand before a holy God is judgment, not mercy. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 6. In Psalm 139, this is David Trusting God to do what is right in his life. Exposing his heart and mind to God and pleading with God to show him his offense that he might repent of it. And that God might lead him in the way that is everlasting. In Isaiah 6, it's a different scenario. The prophet enters into the, into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and he's met by the living God whose glory fills the room. And the first thing out of Isaiah's mouth was not search me and know my anxious heart. His words were, woe is me. I am ruined or undone because I am a man of unclean lips. 
I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord God Almighty. Woe is me. He expected to be judged and destroyed. I think you know that the way the uh, high priest would go in is they would tether a rope to their ankle. And if the high priest went in and he was not properly consecrated before the Lord, purified before the Lord, the Lord would strike him down dead and no one dared go in there and get him. So they'd pull him out with the rope. That's where Isaiah is at. Woe is me. This is reality. I am in the presence of God. I deserve His judgment. I deserve His condemnation. He will destroy me. And in, in that sense, He's actually pleading with God with the woe for mercy. And God's grace, and God grants it to him. One of the seraphs flew to him with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. Seraphs are, are, are spirits of fire, so... He can put the coal in his hand. It's not going to hurt him. But it hurt Isaiah. It's amazing how sanctification is painful, isn't it? But it's not easy. It's not like eating cake. <laughs> it hurts. And he put that coal on Isaiah's lips, and you can imagine the effect. And he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. What do you notice here? God forgives and sanctifies Isaiah. Both David and Isaiah take an honest look at who they are before God and both essentially plead for God's mercy and grace. Don't give us what our sins deserve and lead us in the way everlasting. How can God make this happen? This is the reality of the Christ, of the cross of Christ Jesus. The only way for our sins to be removed is if a substitute takes your place as God is a just God. The only way you receive the inheritance of eternal life is through Christ's death on your behalf. It's His inheritance of righteousness. It's His kingdom that He shares with you. But He had to die in order to give it to you. Oh, I know there are doubters and scoffers out there who don't think that this is real, who think that it's a fantasy. But they will find out someday. As the Bible says, it is appointed to man once to die, and then the judgment. Consider what Solomon says in verses 31 and 32. We're going back to Proverbs 23. He says, Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly, in the end it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. What an image of the, the deceptive power of sin. It appears as a delight to the eyes and it goes down smooth. And then in the end it bites like a snake and poisons your life like a viper. It seems so harmless at first. But in the end, it leaves your life in ruin as you sought the fantasy spun by the devil instead of embracing the reality created by God. What's the first step in Alcoholics Anonymous? Do you know? The first step. 
First step states that we admit it, we admit we are powerless over alcohol and that our lives have become unmanageable. We are powerless over the alcohol and our lives have become unmanageable. Translation out of control. You have no power to stop drinking, to stop the thirst for this fantasy. You were just looking for the next drink. You know, you can let the animal out of the trap, but unless that animal is aware that what he seeks is a trap, he or she will simply become ensnared again. I find this fascinating, how well this addresses the power of sin, how we are initially powerless over the influence of sin and are enslaved to it. It is God's grace through Jesus Christ that breaks us free from sin and opens our eyes to the danger of it as he exhorts us to put sin away like David and Isaiah to ask God to destroy sin in our lives. I want to leave you with this reality. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter but We're just going to focus on a few verses. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. The cycles of sin have kept man in bondage until one day when Jesus who was on the cross said, It is finished. And the temple curtain was rent in two. And mankind who had been in bondage for sin all that time was now free. And this is the new reality that what God God has created for us through Jesus Christ. Verses 50 through 58, Paul says, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood, that which is corrupted by the sin and the curse, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Such a beautiful picture. Because at the end of a person's life, what swallows them up? It is death, that last enemy. And here, through Christ Jesus, it is death that will be defeated. It is death that will be swallowed up. Where, O death, is your victory now? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I would add, who has freed us from the bonds of sin and death. This is a reality for anyone, no matter how bad your day is. 
no matter how difficult your life is. This is the reality for anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ and lives for Him. That the cycle is broken. You have peace with God. And you will dwell with Him in a perfect and holy body forevermore. Think on that this week.